Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories. The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable. We have a Patreon, an Amazon booklist, a coffee and an Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you. All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com. And of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. On Dark Histories, we hear the words of people lost to history, echoing through the writings of labourers, servants, judges, juries, maids and mistresses, exactly as they were written in decades and centuries past. This one-way communication with history is always limited by its very definition, and and no matter how much we dig, we can never ask the writers what they were feeling as they wrote each line, and whilst we judge them by the information they give, we can never invite them to ask what they make of the people and the things of today in our alien, modern world. In 1984, an economics teacher living in the small rural village of Doddleston found that he had the opportunity to do exactly this when he was thrust into a strange link that tied him across centuries with the past inhabitant of his home via an early model personal computer and its word processing software, Edward. Both accused the other of trickery, poltergeist activity, witchcraft and devilry, but eventually a bond between the two was formed. Cross-century communications are never easy, however, especially when the future gets involved. This is Dark History, where the facts are worse than fiction. Alright, hello, welcome to Dark Histories. I'm Ben. This is Series 3, Episode 12, I believe. I think today, best strap yourself in because we're going places (laughs) before we get to it i just want to say thank you to everyone who's joined in with the review drive thing that we've kind of got going on throughout the month of june everyone really stepped up so that was amazing thank you very much if you do want to leave a review please go ahead and do so and if you do by the end of june screenshot it and send a picture of your screenshot with your postal information and we'll send you out like some stickers and stuff like that um, postcards that kind of jazz and also since we've had so many people uh, get involved and do the reviews and uh, just really kind of say like really step up and help out everyone that has done it so far and everyone that partakes before the end of june is going to be entered for a draw for a t-shirt so you want to get in on that get yourself a free t-shirt leave a review on itunes or your podcatcher you know wherever you um, listen to this and you will be entered in that as well as getting free stickers and stuff so yeah thanks everyone for doing that so far thank you for just stepping up really because i say I don't really want to sort of sit here saying like, oh, please give us reviews, please review the podcast. But it really does help just from people leaving the reviews. We've already been kind of featured in What's Hot a few times. So, you know, that really helps other people to discover the show. So, yeah, it's it's been a great help. And I'm really, really chuffed that, you know, I kind of felt a bit cringy asking everyone like, oh, hey, let's do a review drive. Please review podcast. 
but it's really to so say you guys really stepped up and and it's been you've been such a help so thank you so much for that like i say if you want to get involved like drop a review screenshot it send that over to social at darkhistories.com so yeah back to the episode this week this is a story that i came across back in the 90s i was obsessed with things like the outer limits x-files strange but true things like that and occasionally dark histories gets a little bit heavy for me you know i just feel like i need to take a step back and do something a little bit more fun rather than kind of heavy dark kind of grimness uh so this week i've picked a story which i saw this in strange but true in like 1996 and ever since i've been fascinated by it it's a pretty wacky out there story so say strap yourself in because we're definitely going places here this is the doddleston messages ghost in the machine Doddleston, a small rural village on the border of Wales and England, with a population of around 700. It lies on the northern end at the border of England and Wales, 30 miles south of Liverpool and 45 miles southwest of Manchester. It's the sort of small English village that you might drive through without registering it at all. The red brick village hall harkens back to a place lost in time, whilst a local pub, school and chapel breathe life into the old country roads. By the time you've read and registered the welcome sign by the side of the hedge-lined road upon your arrival, you're already leaving. Its residents live in a mix of small, quaint village cottages, converted farm buildings and modern new builds that extend the village out along the two roads it rests upon, the T-junction of which marks the centre of the village life alongside the village store. In 1984, Ken Webster lived in Meadow Cottage, one of the older brick buildings that sat in a small terrace alongside three other cottages, just off of this central junction. Directly opposite sat a much grander old building, surrounded by high hedgerows, second only in size to the local school which sat next door. Meadow Cottage was quaint, but in dire need of restoration. It was a task that Ken Webster was smack bang in the middle of undertaking, as the winter of 84 threatened over the horizon. The stone walls were cold and bare, and after extensive restorative work, were finally ready to be decorated. The building had, in previous months, been less of a home and much more of a building site. But finally, things were beginning to be a little bit more livable. Ken was an economics teacher at the nearby Hawarden High School in the larger village of Hawarden that sat 11 miles to the northwest on the Welsh side of the border. In late autumn of 1984, he lived in Meadow Cottage with his girlfriend, Debbie Oakes, and their recent visitor, Nicola Bagley, an English teacher recently returned from three months in Africa, who slept in the spare room. The spare room doubled as a small practice room and home studio for Ken's musical pursuits. Downstairs, the house consisted of a larger living room that took up the front of the cottage and a small kitchen and bathroom that extended from the back of the house. The first sign of anything strange in the cottage came in late August, when a series of small, spindly footprints appeared on the wall between the kitchen and the bathroom at the back of the house. It seemed as if they walked directly up the wall, all the way to the ceiling, and worse, they appeared to resemble a pair of feet with six toes. Kenneth dismissed them as grubby marks in an old house, but there was something disconcerting about them all the same. Now, as autumn began to fade into winter, 
and painting work was underway, it was finally time to cover up these marks, along with the myriad others that had appeared throughout the renovation work. As fresh paint layered over the weathered concrete, the downstairs took on a new lease of life, and at long last began to take on an air of homeliness. The next day after the paint had dried, however, Ken was disgruntled to note as he passed through the kitchen to the bathroom that the mysterious marks had returned. They had shifted slightly and picked up dust from the floor that made them appear like totally new marks. After a quick inspection by Ken, Debbie and Nick, it was put down to a peculiar curio. Nothing more, and they were swiftly painted over once more in the hopes that the adage, out of sight, out of mind, would ring true. This time, they didn't return, but they left an uneasy feeling in Ken and signalled the beginning of a series of events that would last well beyond the current renovations. With the footprints gone, thoughts moved on to more positive happenings within cottage life. However, over the next days and weeks, strange events only seemed to intensify. Cans, drinks bowls and various other small household goods were routinely found stacked in the corner of the kitchen. The precarious towers extended upwards of four feet high. The trio would go out to eat in the local pub or shopping in the nearby industrial park only to return to new and ever more inventive structures, balancing away casually in the kitchen. It was quickly decided that one of Ken's music buddies were playing games, sneaking around and building the small towers to mess with the inhabitants. But still, it didn't help to put an end to the unease that had formed in the background atmosphere of the small cottage since the footprints had appeared. And every night before going to bed, Ken began a new routine of double-checking that all the locks on the doors and windows were tightly secured. As it happened, due to the age of the place, security was not altogether tight, but he did what he could to make life as difficult as possible for any would-be intruders and tower stackers. If it really was an intruder rather than a friend, there were further concerns. As now the house had become more livable, new decorations and possessions filled the small kitchen and living room, Inviting a robbery by continuing such lax security was not a wise thing by any stretch. The kitchen had also recently been the recipient of its newest feature every weekend, when Ken brought home a BBC microcomputer borrowed from the IT department of the high school he worked at. He thought it might help with Debbie and Nick, who could utilise the word processing software for writing up plans and sketches related to their new projects. Nick had become disillusioned with teaching and was looking at branching out into new theatrical territories, and the machine could come in handy for scriptwriting purposes. Every weekend, Ken would slope out of the IT department and stash the bulky machine in the back of his car, setting it up in the kitchen table for the weekend. The computer was a BBC Model B. It was a bulky thing compared to computers today, and it would make its moniker of micro seem ironic to those not old enough to remember the early days of personal computing. Its characteristic black and red keyboard, sitting below a black screen with illuminated green text, all housed in a clunky beige box, was, however, something of an icon for its day. External disk drives as wide as the monitor themselves acted as storage, holding a cool 160 kilobytes of data, and it was all powered by 32 kilobytes of RAM and a blazing fast 2 megahertz CPU. In 1982, when it was released, this was impressive stuff, 
and it opened up the doors to computing for an entire generation. But to call it limited by today's standards would be a colossal understatement. Chiefly, the borrowed BBC was used in Meadow Cottage as a word processor, utilising Edward, a basic writing software designed for use in schools that could save and print written documents. In December of 1984, a trio at Meadow Cottage headed out to visit friends in the nearby housing estate. As they shut off the lights and closed the front door, no one seemed to notice that the BBC was left powered on, its blinking green cursor sending an eerie, stuttering glow into the room in metronomic fashion. When they returned later that evening, it was much to their surprise that they discovered that not only had the computer been left on, but that someone had been using it in their absence. There on the screen, written in the characteristic green hue, shining out of the monitor were the words. Ken, Debbie, Nick. True are the nightmares of a person that fears, safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks. Pussycat, pussycat went to London to seek fame and fortune. Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. The file was saved to the floppy disk that sat in a drive under the name KDN. Whilst the text itself, as if to aid the creepy tone, were written with random, disjointed capitalization. Immediately, questions flew throughout the three onlookers, who were naturally disturbed. None claimed the missive as their own, and the implications didn't bear thinking of. Clearly, security needed tightening in the cottage, and fast. As December continued on into New Year, Nick returned home to visit for the holidays, but came back to the cottage after the celebrations faded and a gentle thaw settled in, the promise that spring was on its way. By February, Nick had long since returned and life was getting back to the normal routines as the new school term kicked into gear. Normal routines were one thing, but normalcy was still a way off in Meadow Cottage, as things continued to stack in the kitchen, the small towers seeming to centralise around an open brick pillar in the kitchen. These continued to pop up throughout January and February, and what had started as an uneasy peculiarity had slipped into so common of an occurrence as to shift into apathy and gentle amusement at the sight of every new, peculiarly placed pillar of tins, bottles and cardboard packaging appeared. Ken was, by now, fairly certain that some of his musician friends were playing games, and he allowed it to continue without much care. At the end of February, as the weekend mercifully called to bring respite from a particularly long week of teaching, Ken set up the BBC once again in the kitchen table was a much-needed couple of days away from the school, and on Sunday, Ken, Debbie and Nick took off for the day on a country drive. When they returned to the cottage that evening, the light mood took a severe dive, as once again, it appeared someone had been using the computer in their absence. The cursor blinked knowingly on the screen, and Ken fired up the disk drive to see if anything had been saved. There, in the index, was a small file named RE8, The writing was all in capitals and appeared to forgo any use of punctuation. Stranger still, it seemed to all three that it was written in an old form of English, and many of the words were obscure or simply unrecognisable. It read, I write on behalf of many. What strange words thou speak, 
although I must confess that I hath also been ill-schooled. Sometimes methinks alterations are somewhat baffled, for they break many a sleeps in mine bed. Thou art a goodly man, who hath fanciful women who dwell in mine home. I hath no want to affray, but only sith mine half-witted antic has ripped to twain mine bound, hath I been reft the night. I hath seen many alterations, lastly charge house and thy home. Tis a fitting place, with lights which devil maketh, and costly things that only mine friend Edmund Grey can afford, or the king himself. Twas a great crime to have bribed mine house. L.W. This message, though obscure and difficult to read in its entirety, gave off an entirely different vibe to Ken. Whatever it meant, whatever Debbie or Nick felt about it, it sang to me. It wasn't a coldness or dark apprehensiveness on this occasion. After the initial shock, I became absorbed by it. Back at school, the story of the message had done the rounds of the staff room. Most thought it thoroughly amusing, and some eyed the printed text with a layer of fascination. But it was Peter Trinder, the head of the sixth form at Hawarden School, that really took the odd words on the page. One lunchtime, he approached Ken and asked him sincerely if it was a hoax, or if Ken had written it to stir up a story for the other teachers. Ken assured him he had done no such thing, and that it was as far as he was aware a message left on the computer written by an unknown and entirely mysterious author. Peter was fascinated by the language of the communication. He had spent a brief time going over the words used and cross-referencing them with the Oxford English Dictionary and was fairly convinced it was written in a genuine early modern English hand. He asked Ken to keep him in the loop and if possible, if messages were to appear in the future, to pass them on to him so that he could study the makeup of the thing and try to track down where, and more importantly, when the dialect was originating from. Ken agreed. A week later, on the evening of Saturday, February the 9th, Ken sat down with his friend, John Cummings, to write a reply on the computer. The whole thing was utterly bizarre, but if they were to get to the bottom of it, a period of playing along would have to be adhered to. Besides, even as a hoax, it was undeniably intriguing. They crafted a reply asking question after question in the hope of discerning something of the author themselves. In the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, Dear LW, thank you for your message. We are sorry for disturbing you. What would you like us to do? Did you live in a house on this land about 1620? Do you want us to tell you more about our time? Why write a poem? Who is Edward Grey? Is he related to the Egerton family? Do you have a family? Is the King James or Charles Stuart? What is the charge house? Was this village called Doddleston in your life? And how many families lived here? Thank you very much for your messages. Thank you for not making us afraid. Ken, Debbie and John. The trio saved it to the disc and left the computer cursor, flashing with all the frail hope that a reply would come. That afternoon, after John had returned home, Ken and Debbie set out to leave the house unoccupied for a time, in the hopes that it might facilitate a reply. And facilitate it did. When they arrived home, a new reply had been left. "'Twas an honest farm of oak and stone. It is helpful that you should tell me about thy time. Dost thou have horse? Edmund Grey, brother of John Grey, 
lives at Kinnerton Hall. The king, of course, is Henry VIII, who is six and forty, and they root of King James. Mine Charge House is a place of law. LW, 28 March, Anno 1521. It was a troubling reply as far as Ken was concerned, in more ways than one. Quite aside from the strangeness of communicating with an apparent intruder in cryptic messages, the facts concerning the history were all wrong. In 1521, Henry VIII was only 30 years old. Still, Ken passed the message on to Peter as requested, and a few days later, Peter too confirmed that Kinnerton Hall was not even built until the late 17th century and he had been unable to find any mention of Edmund Gray in any records. The small flash of excitement inside the cottage's inhabitants that the messages maybe, just maybe, were really written somehow by a ghostly visitor from the 16th century England faded as the reality that an intruder was potentially breaking into the cottage and leaving the messages kicked in. It was disconcerting to say the least. The following weekend, Ken once more borrowed the BBC from school. However, this time it was intentionally for the sole purpose of receiving messages from the mysterious LW. He would get to the bottom of this somehow. That weekend, the writer wrote once again. This time though, he chose to sign off with his full name, Lucas, rather than just the mysterious LW of previous missives. In the message, he wrote of his wife's death, the name of some of his acquaintances, and strangely, the quality of their cheese. For Ken and Peter, however, these were all testable snippets of information that could be cross-referenced in records, maps, and in the census to see if they could nail down a time frame from which the writer was claiming to be writing from. One of the pieces of information that stood out to Ken was when Lucas mentioned his house to be made from red stone. During the renovation work, a builder had dug up several red sandstone blocks in the garden extending out from the house. Were they the foundations of an earlier building that Lucas had lived in? Further, it appeared that Lucas himself seemed to think that Ken and Debbie were intruding upon his house and he had his own misgivings about them. Peter studied this new message and he thought the dialect was very possibly stemming from the West Country. He asked Ken to include a reference to Bristol in his reply and sure enough, when Lucas wrote back once more, he confirmed that he had grown up in Bristol and signed off with his full name, Lucas Wainman. With this, Ken, Debbie and Peter had all the information they needed to look him up in history and discover if he truly existed or was simply a figment of an overactive imagination tugging the three along. They decided to take stock. So far, they had learnt of little but the author's name, Lucas Wayman. Many of the details he had offered up were chronologically unsound, and Peter had found one or two uses of words which were dangerously out of period by up to 200 years. Still, Peter himself was impressed in the main given the speed at which the replies came and the overall consistency of the language. A bigger concern was the untraceable names that were mentioned, though they also reasoned that if everyone had been simple to find, then this too would have lent itself to the whole thing being a hoax or a prank, given that the culprit could have looked up a whole host of simple-to-find, geographically and chronologically correct names for insertion into this wild fantasy world. All the time, strange activities in the house, such as the stacking of objects, was now dubbed by Ken and Debbie 
as some form of poltergeist and had begun to cause a strain on the atmosphere. Debbie had decided to rent a house away from the cottage where the couple could at times sleep easier. The house on East Green was a makeshift house furnished from a skip, the whole thing a DIY nightmare. Fake panelling, a plastic bath, the toilet at the wrong height for the bathroom floor, but it had a bed in which we could sleep at ease, comfort and security. It was not home, but a very welcome shelter against the rising swells and cross-currents of our anxieties. And still, Ken would book out a BBC computer every weekend to bring home and allow Lucas to write his peculiar messages. Julie Lucas complied with the schedule, confirming that he was sure that Ken and Debbie were, at least to him, encroaching upon his house. I knowest not where thou come, or whither will ye go, nor do I hath accounting for why ye are best in mine home, but thou art a goodly visitor, and ye may abide as long as ye like. He also wrote of how his servant believed him to be crazy, or some kind of savant, and suggested that Ken and Debbie were all in his head. For Ken and Debbie, Lucas was either long since dead and communicating from some form of afterlife, or Lucas was still alive and somehow their presence had collided, linking them over 400 years. After Peter's ongoing analysis of the writing had seemingly confirmed a level of legitimacy in the text, Ken was now beginning to believe less and less in a hoax, and more and more in the possibility that they just might be communicating with a real man, living in the past. As much as it was difficult to believe, and stretched all possibilities, he could not deny that the replies were coming to the computer faster and more frequent, so that the concept of a hoax or prank was becoming equally as absurd. In previous messages, Ken had spoken briefly of cars and modern inventions, and as a test, he took a clipping from a magazine of a Jaguar XJ Coupe and placed it on top of the computer along with his next message to Lucas. Debbie was asleep upstairs, and so Ken went out for the evening to meet with his friends, and upon his return, he once again saw that Lucas had replied. Lucas spoke of the picture of the car. Mine goodly friend, I hath on thy car portraying, but tis a crude thing, for without mine horse it shall not gone far. Somehow, the photo had been able to be discovered, just as Ken had hoped. Upon further inspection, the photograph was left charred and brittle. Lucas had commented on the picture itself too, questioning what kind of wood the paper was made from and had, for some strange reason, included the recipe for pumps with pastry and peas. More importantly, he told Ken that he had studied at Jesus College in Oxford, supplying a host of authors and texts that he had read and also gave the name of the local lawman. These were all further things that they could research and verify. Another thing that Ken took note was that this message had come when Debbie was left at home, asleep in the upstairs bedroom. Though Ken had left for the evening, the lights had been left on whilst he was away. If this was just a prankster or an intruder, they were beginning to get awfully bold in their methods. For the past few weeks, Ken and Debbie had, as it happened, been hearing footsteps walking over the kitchen roof. However, when they checked to see who was there, they could never spot a likely culprit. At least... There was never any signs of a would-be intruder and nothing else in the area that could have caused any knocking that they could mistake for footprints. That week whilst at school, P 
Peter approached Ken and brought bad news. While some of the information from Lucas's most recent communication concerning his schooling had been confirmed through records, much of it was either impossible or contained further inconsistencies that devastated the veracity of the messages. The college that Lucas claimed to have attended had not yet even been built in Lucas's time, and there were some errors in the Latin that he had written. Peter and Ken decided to forge forwards with their replies and to not let on to the writer just how much of the backstory of this Lucas character they had researched. Ken thought that confrontation would not do. Rather, he decided it best to play it gullible in order to get to the bottom of what was going on. February had turned to March, spring was due, and still the mystery footsteps, the bizarre stacking, and the messages continued. On the 10th of March, Lucas wrote again, only in this message, the tone was different. Lucas appeared angry at Ken. His message, as translated to modern English by Peter, read as follows. My friend, pray what strange demon are you? I am so confused. You are goodly, I feel, but your lies frighten me much. You said you are alive, but this is not so. I have no wish to accuse you, but you said also that you are an educated man and that you know of my friend Erasmus, but you do not mention my misspelt words. If you were alive, you would say you know not of Jesus' college. Lucas then questioned many modern things, such as Ken's previous description of electricity, and he ends the message by saying, It is not I that make you afraid, it is you that makes me afraid. A slow dawning of understanding unfolded through Ken's mind. He placed himself in Lucas's shoes and thought of the fear that he and Debbie had been feeling of Lucas. Of course, as far as Lucas was concerned, Ken was some kind of demon or witchcraft. Ken deduced that it would naturally, therefore, lend Lucas to test him, just as Ken had tested Lucas by asking so many questions to specific details in his life. Lucas had intentionally been leading them all astray, buying certain obvious errors into his answers, both protecting his own information and testing Ken and Debbie at the same time. Ken promptly replied in an effort to allay Lucas's fears, and the reply came back from Lucas that gave real answers to those that he had previously intentionally obfuscated. He said he had schooled at Bracenose College rather than Jesus. Several days later, Ken and Debbie visited Peter to supply him with the latest message. Peter was thrilled, and the trio considered their next move. Peter suggested to Ken that he get in contact with the Society for Psychical Research in order to have the whole thing legitimately investigated. The SPR were founded during the late Victorian period and have, even until today, attempted to investigate and study all manner of phenomena with a degree of academic rigour and scientific method. Ken, though reluctant at first to open the whole affair up to such public scrutiny, eventually capitulated and Peter began looking into the process. For Debbie, an investigation could not come soon enough. Two days later, while sitting in a lounge, she had had her own encounter with the poltergeist activity, which had only continued to sink the atmosphere in the cottage further. On this night, the disturbance manifested itself as small tapping noises on the door to the kitchen, which I kept bolted when I was alone. It made me edgy, but I put some music on and they seemed to disappear. When all was quiet, I took a look under the door into the kitchen to check if the coast was clear in the hope that I could go and make a coffee. Sure that all seemed clear, I put the main light on 
brazenly barged into the kitchen and made a drink. No problems. I came back into the lounge and sat down with a coffee. At that instant, I felt a prickly coldness against the left side of my face and neck and something pulled at my hair. I thought it was my collar at first until it persisted another four times and then stopped. It happened so quickly, I wasn't sure what to think until a few seconds later I felt a slight pressure gripping my shoulder, which was unbearable. I knew someone was to the left of me, but could not see at the corner of my eye. I turned around and nothing was there. I ran outside the house and waited for Ken to return. The cold, damp rain didn't bother me as much as the house. If this was not enough to freak out the most ardent sceptic to their current situation, Debbie had also begun having dreams of seeing Lucas in the kitchen at the cottage. The dreams were extremely vivid, and though Ken suggested that Debbie was letting the communications with Lucas get to her deeply enough to affect her in her sleep, they found a chalk mark on the open brick pillar the next morning, spelling out Lucas's name in a scrawled script. Debbie decided it was enough for her and took to sleeping in the East Green rental property more and more, rarely choosing to stay over at the cottage whenever a get-out was possible. Thankfully, the SPR were prompt in their reply. They were interested in the story so far, they explained to Peter that before they could commit, they needed them to eliminate some of their more pressing concerns. This meant that they wanted security at the cottage stepped up, and at least one testimony from an outside source that could sit with both Deb and Ken to ensure that neither were writing the messages themselves. Whilst Debbie and Ken arranged for some of Debbie's family to stay over at the cottage in order to verify for the SPR that they were not involved, Peter visited Bracenose College in Oxford to see if he could find any records of Lucas in the alumni. His trip ended in failure, and once again, he found nothing but a brick wall. There were no records of a Lucas Wayneman ever attending the school. When they wrote this in a message, Lucas gave the name of several of his fellow students they could further look up if they wished. Peter found some relief in this, as the records for the college were incomplete, and so one or two names could easily have slipped through the cracks of the page. But the more names they had to check, the less likely they were to hit dead ends in their research. On the 4th of April, however, a reply came from Lucas, which shook up the research once more. Lucas had involved a friend of his own and had spoken to him of the messages he was receiving from Debbie and Ken. This message came from said friend and he let slip a vital piece of information. The fashion of our time is such that I will not give my own name, nor Lucas's true description and name. If what he said was true, then Lucas was not, in fact, called Lucas at all. He had been using a nom de plume all this time. All the searching for Lucas Wayneman had been for nothing. It did, however, explain precisely why they had found nothing. In April, the SBR called Ken to arrange a visit and discuss the case. There was still the small quibble they had with the lack of distinct proof that neither Debbie or Ken was involved, however, and so, in mid-April, Debbie's mother and brother followed through in their earlier promise and arrived at the cottage to stay for the weekend. Ken had borrowed the BBC from school again and he set it on the usual table. They wanted everything to be as close to the usual circumstances as possible and Debbie stayed in the lounge with her family whilst Ken visited friends for the evening. Debbie's mother wrote the following testimony for Debbie and Ken to pass on to the SPR. 
My son and I arrived at Meadow Cottage at approximately 7.45pm on the 15th of April 1985. A few minutes later, a friend of Mr Webster's called at the front door for something. After a few words were exchanged between my daughter and the caller, he left and we three, my daughter, Debbie, my son and myself, went into the kitchen. We checked the windows and doors in the kitchen and bathroom. The back door was locked with the chain on the inside. The windows were closed, including the skylights, though we did not have time to check if they were locked. We then gave our attention to the computer. All previous entries on the disk were inspected. Debbie typed a few lines onto the screen, and as far as we knew, there was nothing entered after that. I felt cold at times, and at one stage was shivering. We all kept our coats on, as there was no fire in the hearth. We went to the kitchen again at 9pm, and we all saw a new entry displayed starting with a poem. We were short of time and I was unable to understand all that was entered at the time, but did manage to read and understand one or two lines. We then left the cottage. Ken also arranged with the mechanics teacher at Hawarden High School to come over and give further testimony as more proof for the SBR. By now the story had become quite a feature at the school and so Frank Davis was more than happy to come and be a part of it all. On the Monday the 22nd of April, Davis arrived to sit with Debbie and Ken for the evening and see what occurred. At 8pm, a noticeable drop in temperature occurred, which lasted some two or three minutes. The coldness did not seem to be due to any air movement, though there must have been some as the fire was burning gently in the grate. After a few minutes, the room temperature became comfortably normal again. On returning to the kitchen, we observed a new message on the computer. The message was from someone calling themselves John, and it told us that the sheriff had put Lucas in prison, apparently for communicating with us. Debbie appeared genuinely concerned at this turn of events. So, Ken and Debbie now had two testimonies for the SPR, but just as Davis had stated, the situation with Lucas had apparently become quite dire. Lucas had, it seemed, been arrested just as Davis had said. Talk had gotten out and circulated the village that Lucas had been communicating with some kind of demonic spirit in his house, and he had promptly been arrested for witchcraft. Ken and Debbie deduced from previous messages that John, who was now writing to them informing them of Lucas's bleak fate, was the local sheriff. Alarmed, Ken eventually wrote back to John, informing him that he would need to speak with Lucas if the device they were using to communicate was to be seen by the sheriff himself. Somehow or another, the sheriff was communicating without himself being able to touch or see it, apparently. Whatever, these problems could be sorted out later. For now, Ken and Debbie focused on getting Lucas out of this difficult predicament. Equally as surprising was that this line of action seemed to work, as the next message they received was written again by Lucas, though he seemed downtrodden and dejected, resigned to a difficult future that lay ahead of him. During this difficult period of communication, Lucas, however, did write one thing which, above all else, was even more curious. Y'all said y'all time be 1985. Me thought y'all were also from 2109, like y'all friend whom did bring Leamsboist. Pray. The Leamsboist was Lucas's name for the computer which Peter had already roughly translated as Box of Lights. But much more alarming was the mention of 2109. Lucas had thought that they were from the year 2109, like their friend. 
So Lucas had been visited by another person before the communications had even started, and this person was, evidently, from even further into the future. At a loss of where to go with this new information, Ken decided to do all he knew to do when it came to the BBC. He wrote them a message titled, Calling 2109. Sure enough, 2109 responded, though the answer was so cryptic that it gave them little new understanding of this new, strange development. Ken, Deb, Peter, we are sorry that we can only give you two choices. One, that you either have your predicament explained in such a non-rhyme way that you may have instant understanding but cause what should not be to happen, or two, try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he, it, is. If things were strange up till now, they were nothing after this new message. Time was getting complicated enough when it slipped one way, but here it began to ebb and flow back and forth in ways that were truly bizarre. There were now two lanes of communication open to Ken and Debbie in Meadow Cottage, one that led to the 16th century and another that led apparently to the 22nd. Things were starting to get a little out of control for the humble BBC Model B that sat with its green cursor innocently blinking away on the kitchen table. Meanwhile, the librarian at Bracenose College in Oxford had been busy unearthing the list of books that Lucas had mentioned in a previous message. Peter had left the task with the librarian on his previous visit and he had now received a letter confirming not only that all the books existed, but they were all contemporary to the 1520s. On the 14th of May, the SPR also contacted Peter and arranged to meet with him, Ken and Debbie at Peter's house. On the night of the meeting, two investigators, John Bucknell and Dave Welsh, showed up to talk through their stance and where they intended to take the investigation. It quickly became apparent to Ken that both were extremely sceptical and they admitted as much when they confirmed that until they could eliminate them, Ken and Debbie were the primary suspects for a hoax. They then went to the cottage, set up a recording booth in the upstairs rear bedroom, trailing microphones out of the rear window and pointing them into a crack in the skylight in order to record, as discreetly as possible, any sounds originating in the kitchen. They then sat in the lounge with Debbie, taping up the edges of the doors and sent Ken out to the pub for a couple of hours. And then, they waited. By 9.30pm, two and a half hours after the test had started, They tore off the tape, entered the kitchen and checked the computer. There was nothing. Disappointed, they arranged to come back and try again on another evening, but Ken was deflated. Peter, on the other hand, invited the scepticism, relaying to Ken that it was only reassuring that they were doing their job correctly. Ken reluctantly came round. May also saw the poltergeist activity intensify further to new levels. One morning, Devi arrived at the cottage to find all of the furniture in the living room stacked against the wall. I dropped Ken off at school after spending the night at East Green, then drove over to the cottage to feed the cats. It was 9am. It was not until I walked up the path to the front door that I sensed something was very wrong. Perhaps it was the cats sitting on the garden wall watching me rather than circling my feet as they usually do, which prompted this unease. 
I turned the key in the lock and pushed the door open. In the living room, I came face to face with a six-foot-high pile of furniture. It appeared to me in that instant to have been tossed by the little finger of a giant. Instantly, I took a step back and out of the door and slammed it shut. The cat still watched me in silence from the wall. I didn't know quite what to do. One thing she did do was to take a photo of the chaos. It was not only furniture, but all the appliances too, as the cooker was pulled away from the wall, its doors left swinging open on its hinges. On the 3rd of June, the SPR returned. This time they forewent with the complicated microphone setup and simply taped the doors and windows, and then they went to the pub where they ate and drank for the evening, returning to the cottage after three hours. Ken and Debbie stayed outside, whilst John Bucknell and Dave Welsh entered the kitchen alone. Once again, they were met with a blank computer screen. No messages. On the Lucas front, Ken and Debbie still hadn't heard much from him. It was transpiring that he was effectively locked in a prison cell, awaiting trial for witchcraft, a fact they deduced from rough conversations with the sheriff. One day at school, one of Ken's colleagues suggested threatening the sheriff. They were, after all, from a suspicious time and already held a certain level of trepidation when dealing with Ken's messages. Surely this would be easy. Ken was unsure, but thought it perhaps worth a shot. Time was running out for Lucas, and he felt a certain level of responsibility for landing him in the predicament he was now in. He sat down at the computer and wrote, Lucas is a good man and should not die. We are not devils, but we have power. Lucas must not die, but must be set free to return to his house, and then we will speak with you as friends. We too are fearful for your soul if Lucas does die at your hand. Upon reading the message, the sheriff very quickly backtracked on the incarceration of Lucas. Unsurprisingly, he was fearful of the message's warnings upon his soul and he arranged for Lucas to be released immediately. The next message they received on the computer was from Lucas himself. Their triumph was short-lived, however, when they discovered from Lucas that later, in July, Lucas had been having trouble with a local named Grosner. Grosner was a local landowner and he had taken an interest in Lucas's property whilst he was in prison, and now that he was released, he was still not backing off from pushing through with the purchase on the land. Lucas informed Ken and Debbie that in November he was to be evicted. If this was to transpire, then it effectively stamped an end date on the communications. The SPR continued their investigations, arranging similar pub-based vigils as the first two, taping the doors, going out for drinks and returning to find nothing. They tried on the 24th of June and a few days later for a fourth time. Ken sensed, however, that this time their enthusiasm for the case was on the wane. It was time for a holiday. In August, Ken and Debbie took a week away from the cottage to refresh their minds and get a break from the intense happenings of the previous nine months. When they returned, they decided to ask Lucas about the poltergeist activity, as a thought had been rolling around their minds whilst they had been away. When they arrived home, Ken sat back down at the computer and asked, Do small platters and knickknacks move without your touch? Lucas soon wrote back, confirming that they did, and further, that it was not him that had been tormenting Ken and Debbie. They both had been blaming one another for the activity since the start, 
but now it appeared as if neither were the culprit for the other. They conferred over the matter and concluded that it was more than probable that it was the suspicious author calling themselves 2109, and they both wrote of their own distrust of this character. Lucas then asked Ken that if it would be possible to move the BBC into a certain position into the kitchen, he thought it might help to conceal it in his own and may even allow him to divulge more information about himself. 2109 had previously warned both that they should not relay details about each other, but if they could communicate without their interference, then perhaps it could be possible. Ken also decided to try leaving out paper and pen to see if Lucas would be able to write on that in the same way that he was able to see the earlier photo of the car. As it turned out, Lucas was able to do so, and when they later checked the kitchen, they found a scrawled page of writing in rough, spidery hand. Lucas had signed his name Thomas and left cryptic clues as to his surname. You have my name in your book. It is also the place for Peter's house. Peter lived in a nearby village of Hawarden, where Ken taught, and right from the start, they had considered a local man by the name of Thomas Hawarden to be the communicator. Excitedly, they visited Peter with this new information and confirmed that Thomas Hawarden had been a student at Bracenose College in 1530 until his expulsion in 1538 for expunging the name of the Pope. They finally had the name of their man and it bolstered Ken's spirits that he was a real man in history, seemingly confirming everything he had told them until now. In September, 2109 decided to insert themselves into the narrative far more aggressively and equally as bizarrely. On the 3rd of September, Ken woke to find the computer pulled up and placed in the bathroom. On the marble work surface in the kitchen was a message left in chalk. One more chance. Measure frequency by plus two energy. What else other than sound and light? It was utterly peculiar and held zero significance for Ken. 2109 also wrote messages on the computer, apparently quite upset that Ken and Lucas had gone behind their back to conspire against them. Ken Deb Peter, we have reason to believe you have Lucas Wayman's true name. If this is correct, you must say so, so that we may rectify the problem immediately before it is accepted. They also alluded to the concept that it was them that had allowed the communication between Ken and Lucas to continue at all and that it was, perhaps, all an experiment on their part. All told, Ken found 2109's tone rather distasteful, and as such, he chose to minimise his conversation with them. SPR, however, were relatively interested in what they had to say, and they spoke with Ken to suggest a new route for their investigation. If they could ask 2109 a series of 10 questions by writing them onto the computer without Ken or Debbie knowing their contents, this could effectively eliminate them from suspicion. Ken, reluctant as always to communicate with 2109 at all, eventually agreed to the experiment, and on Monday the 23rd of September, Dave Welsh brought the questions to the cottage, writing them onto the computer screen, then after 45 minutes, deleting them and waiting for a response. None came. At least, none came immediately. Four days later, on the 27th, 2109 responded to the SPR's question. David, John. David, you interfere with communication. Next time you decide to perform your little experiment, you must be clear. 
From here, we suggest you try someone else to sit with Devi. Yes, we are what you would call a tachyon universe, but your understanding is incorrect. We ask nothing more of you than to carry on as you would prefer. We will have John present if given choice, or you may bring another as mentioned. No, it is no concern to us that this is not proved. We will give you a plotting of a star next time. We move at a speed so that we cover every point in your time and universe. We have no form. We feed of a neat energy that you will not have heard of. 2109 Ken relayed this message to Dave Welsh over the phone, who seemed less than interested. But he arranged to ask further questions. This time, they would like to place the questions onto their own computer, and if possible, to take away the computer from the cottage to check it for hacks or bugging equipment. During this time, Lucas continued to write to Ken, often using pen and paper, which by now he had become quite adept at utilising. As November approached and the time left for the communications dwindled, Ken and Debbie decided to ask Lucas as much as they could to clear up any of the misunderstandings that they had suffered in the past messages. Lucas and Ken surmised that 2109 had very probably tampered with some of these early messages in order to obfuscate certain facts that they didn't wish one to tell the other. It soon became obvious that this had been the case, and now Lucas re-edited his earlier messages to re-establish his originally intended meanings. It also became apparent that not content with simple edits, there were some earlier messages from Lucas that they had received which were faked by 2109 in their entirety. This, rather conveniently, cleared up many of the errors that Peter had found with one or two of Lucas's out-of-place phrases. Despite these physical pen-and-paper communications, the SPR appeared to Ken to be quite tired of their investigation, which were, by now, routinely leading nowhere. In fact, unbeknown to Ken at the time, Dave Welsh was more or less through with the whole affair. He had been sceptical from the outset, and as the investigations continued, he saw nothing to change his opinions. With the lack of interest from the SBR, it was now once again time to take stock of the situation. Ken, Debbie and Peter met to talk of where they should go next and Peter suggested contact in the local newspaper in order to get the story out into the public to see if any new leads of an interested researcher might come about. The Chester Observer took on the story and they published the piece on the 22nd of December 1985. The story straddled the fence and presented a relatively neutral outlook on the Ken and Lucas saga. Interestingly though, the writer had managed to track down Dave Welsh and John Bucknell of the SPR investigation. They told the press quite plainly why they had lost interest in the case. We did not get a specific answer. We got a generalised commentary accusing us of not believing in what was going on. We got waffle. Clearly, if this case is a hoax, then the two teachers are prime suspects. I believe it is also possible that a third party was responsible. I would have loved to prove it was genuine. It would have been the most unique phenomena ever recorded. Something or someone is doing it. It was not the job of the SPR to point the finger. Just as Ken had suspected, the SPR investigators had been deeply skeptical all along and they never took anything from the computer as serious replies to their questions. Strangely though, when Ken contacted the SPR to obtain the records of the case, he was told that none existed. John Bucknell had very recently left the organisation and could not be contacted, and Dave Welsh was not even registered as a member of the SBR at all. As communications with Lucas neared their end, 
Ken and Debbie took some time away to collect their thoughts. 2109, however, was keen to help. A message arrived on the computer with the name and contact phone number of a reasonably local researcher that they thought could help. We ask you to do the following. There is a brilliant researcher, ufologist. We know you don't like the word. His name is Gary M. Rao. His ideas differ somewhat to yours, but nevertheless, he can help you with a couple of your problems. Gary M. Rao, it turns out, was a UFO researcher living in Rill in Wales. He was the founder of a group called Forward to Aquarius Paranormal and Psychical Research Organisation and co-founder of the Welsh Federation of Independent Ufologists. When he received the call from Peter, he too immediately swung towards the sceptical bent that the SPR had adopted. I was certain that this was simply a wind-up. Some pranksters heard about my research into the weird and the strange and therefore they assumed that I must be gullible and easily fooled. Nevertheless, he resolved to visit Doddleson to see what the situation was and to see what he could do to help. The group met up first in a small rural pub to make their introductions and to sound one another out. If Gary was sceptical of Ken, it was nothing for how Ken felt about Gary. Gary arranged for Ken to leave a sealed envelope on top of the computer, but they must not open it and read it themselves. 2109 was fairly pleased with the whole concept and they promptly responded, telling Ken to print the document, seal it away in an envelope and not to read it himself, but to deliver it back to Gary. Dutifully, he went about this business just as 2109 had asked. Ken had, unwittingly, become the middleman for a series of communications between Gary and 2109, and when Gary replied back, it was far from what one might describe as normal. I am instructed to apologise, but in any event, I would have done so on my own volition. There will be a letter hopefully this weekend. I am also instructed to apologise to Ken and Debbie. I must try and answer your last letter. It would appear that you are more important than I had realised in the scheme of things. Gary. Whatever message Gary had received from 2109, it had affected a sharp about-face in his scepticism. And still... As the mysterious communications continued with 2109, Lucas continued to write. As time ran out and Lucas planned to leave, Ken asked him how he originally came out of the computer in the kitchen. Lucas explained that one night, a strange green light began to emit from his chimney breast and upon closer inspection, a man had stepped out of it. This man, he told Lucas, told him not to fear and to keep his faith and be strong. When he left, Lucas found what appeared to be a computer, or at least some form of the same computer that Ken had in his own kitchen. He also wrote of how his words appeared on the screen and that he didn't type at all. Rather, he merely needed to speak to the machine and the words would appear in a sort of 1980s spectral dictation. On the 21st of March, Lucas wrote his final communication. It spoke of his future plans and of how he would write a book about his experiences writing to Ken. Peter's translation of it is as follows. My true fellows and sweet maid, Grosner has said that Thomas must go. I know it is for the best because the people of Doddleston are very wary of me. Grosner says that they will burn my old farm down and that except for him all the villagers despise me. At least that is his view. It is good to know that all will change and there are true men to follow like Ken and Peter, though 400 years is a long time 
and there is much to happen to mankind. It is sad that men must learn righteousness from their ugly ways, believing that they have to look for truth in ruthlessness and never follow a path that is for truth. I pray for my fellows at night that they are never imprisoned because of their love for their brother Thomas. Are we not true men? I say, woe to all you men who are not true, for you are marked by God. He will not have your company, but you will walk with the beasts of Tartarus forevermore. Yes, you that have no worth in this life. I know that I mustn't sorrow, for I cannot put these feelings to paper, but you must know that I weep and am emotional. I find it hard to write. Perhaps you will come to Oxford. Now I think there is no danger for me there, for I hear the king is very sick and all is quiet in the church. I shall go by boat from Chester to Bristol. There I will buy a horse, for mine will not go on a boat. It is as scared of water as it is scared of fives. I also weep for him. I shall try to make my stay at Bracenose, though I know I was expelled many years ago. I will write my book about my brothers and maid, and of the end of Lucas and the little puppy, and of our love for one another. One day you will all sit down at my table for wine and meat by the river in Oxford, where we shall read each other's books and laugh, and we shall speak of truth and good men, watching Oxford change together forevermore. In your time, my book is old, but I shall not go to my God until it is written, then we will all be truly embraced. My love to you all, I shall await you in Oxford, Thomas Hawarden. This was followed by one last message from 2109. There is another person to come. They will be the help we need. You will know when they come. Thomas did eventually write his book and he soon died shortly after. He placed it in a secure place. It shouldn't take too many years to find it, though he wrote it in Latin with the help of a friend that he met in Oxford. The inscription reads, Me writes this in the hope that mine friends will one day find this book then may our lands be not so distant. We will finish now. You have a lot of work to do. There is no need for you to write back as we will have gone. Thank you for your cooperation. 2109 So, according to 2109, Lucas wrote his book, though he had placed it in a secure place. When the book comes to light, all of this, Ken thought, will be validated in one swift strike. The cursor on the BBC blinked on the empty screen. After the events of the Doddleston messages, Ken went on to write his own book on the events, and then, nothing. All fell quiet around Ken and Debbie's story for several years. The investigation of the SPR was well and truly over, if not entirely buried, and Gary Rao, the ufologist, had taken his sealed envelopes and scarpered. Ken, Debbie and Peter were left with a binder full of messages, both from Lucas and 2109 that totaled in over 300. Life more or less continued quietly, and Ken seemingly embraced it. In 1996, when BBC Television picked the story up for inclusion on a programme titled Out of This World, though they cooperated with the producers, they only appeared briefly and with their backs to the camera and voices distorted. Writing shortly after, Ken said, I returned to Guy Leon Playfair, who concluded, it may be the wisest course to follow after obtaining positive evidence of any kind in any area of psychical research to make use of it for personal enlightenment and therefore to keep quiet about it. Now, just over 10 years after our own adventures, it sadly seems good advice. Meadow Cottage was important to us. It is sufficient. 
The same BBC programme took a sample of the messages to be analysed by a scholar in early modern English, Dr Laura Wright of Cambridge University. When asked if she thought it was a hoax, she replied, If it's meant to look like early modern English writing, it doesn't even look close. And then when asked if she thought it may have been hoaxed by someone with experience in the scholarship of early modern English, she damningly replied, No. If somebody had a background in early modern English writing, their hoax would look a lot better than this. They also took a 500-word sample from both Ken's book and the message and compared the styles, finding that there was a correlation in sentence structure between the two that placed them in the same percentile, suggesting that they were written by the same hand. Ken naturally spoke out against these findings, defending himself by stating that the BBC only took a tiny sample of one message. Peter too spoke of the writer of the messages and of how he thought a hoax more than just simply difficult. Who could devise such documents using the dictionary backwards by searching out recondite terms and then checking every word used not only for its meaning but also its form in a particular period? The amount of effort involved in this process beggars belief. Even if the process of composition in this way by some modern hoaxer is conceivable, there was very frequently no time in which it could possibly have been carried out. Moreover, of course, we are looking only at the how, and we are leaving out the bigger questions of who and why. Ufologist Gary Rowe has since too spoken out about his own involvement, brief as it had been. If this story had not been made public or turned into a book, I would have never spoken about it to another living soul. I sincerely wish it had not. For me, the Doddleston messages are not a story or a book. Instead, it is part of my life one that has profoundly impacted everything I thought I knew. It changed me forever. The information gained came at a high price. I wish I was at liberty to discuss my communication with 2109. I'm not a wealthy person. I believe this information I sit on could make me rich and famous. I believe I was selected due to knowledge that I'm a person who can be trusted to keep the secret sacred. The secret has its own built-in evidence. And Gary, along with various other characters from the story, have since crawled out of the shadows to speak more in various message boards across the internet. Writing in the comments section of a blog post in 2017, some 31 years after the fact, Gary wrote, I am not some away with the fairies wishful believer. I investigated with professional detachment, not bothered what I would find, fake or fact. I left no stone unturned and used cutting-edge science to get to the truth. In fact, I believed it was the first computer-controlled psychic investigation recorded in the world. I don't care two hoots if no one ever believes it. I know it really happened. It changed my life forever. It's going to change yours. The book should, will one day be ISBN recorded under the history section. It is a monumental historical marker in the ribbon of time. Gary then goes on to insinuate that a misprint that names chapter 23 in Ken Webster's book as chapter 7 It's perhaps not a misprint at all, rather an intentional orchestration by 2109. Debbie herself has also chimed in on the Paracast podcast forums, where she replied to a thread discussing Ken Webster's book, stating that her and Ken were still on the trail for Thomas's book, as well as the identity of Thomas himself. She also pointed out, quite firmly, that both her and Ken were not interested in giving any public interviews about their entire affair as the media had not been kind in their treatment of the story in the past. Presumably, she was talking of BBC's involvement with their analysis of Lucas's messages. 
In the end, at least until Thomas's own book is found, we are left only with Ken's book to tell us the story of the Doddleston messages. We must make our minds up from that. It is a story which, despite all its fantastical elements, fosters a healthy cult following, as well as researchers who continue to try and make sense of not only Lucas, but just who and what 2109 were, and what their words meant. I told you we were going places, didn't I? And places we've been it is, yes, quite a different story for Dark Histories, but quite a story. After these adverts, we're going to get into this a little bit. <laughs> As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible, which is really great. I'm actually a member of Audible myself, so I'm really glad to bring in an advertiser that, you know, I actually do rate. For those that are not aware, Audible is an audiobook subscription service whereby you pay a monthly sub and you get a credit with each month to purchase an audiobook of your choice. When you cancel your subscription, you get to keep all your previously purchased books which you can access across devices from Mac, Windows, Android and iOS and they all stay synced up with one another. If this all sounds like something you might be interested in, hop over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can find a special offer. Sign up for a free month including your first credit to purchase an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the month you decide that it's not for you, you can cancel, not pay a penny, and you get to keep the audiobook from your trial, so it's literally a win-win. Thanks very much for suffering through my spiel, and once again, if it does appeal, head over to audible.com forward slash darkhistories, or you can find the link on the support page of darkhistories.com. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool, but a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories Patreon. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, the full back catalogue of bonus episodes, including the live stream archive, and all the other bonus content. You get access to all my research notes for each episode, and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sell a listen. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So, that was the Doddleston Messages. I heard of this, I say, like in the 90s, I used to watch this TV program, um, Out of This World, that is mentioned. There was a couple that was Out of This World and Strange But True. And I, I think I heard of this one, Out of This World, but it could have been Strange But True. They, they probably had a lot of crossover. But they were basically the same sort of thing where they would show, like, tell stories and give, like, dramatic reenactments of something and then sort of interview a few people. So they were the same sort of TV show. But I guess I probably saw it on Out of This World. So I, that was when I first saw it and I've always kind of remembered it because I've always kind of loved the idea of time slips. So I was always really into the story and then later, much later, I found out there was a book. Um, I'd say this was probably about five years ago or so. I, I found out that there was a book of the story and I looked it up but it was woefully out, like difficult to get hold of. It was out of print and just impossible to get. And then... Mysterious Universe, another podcast that 
that sort of like comedy paranormal stuff. They covered the story and it kind of blew up because they're, they're, they're pretty big in the podcast world. So it really blew up. And the book started getting hiked massively. But the plus side of that meant that it got a reprint. So finally I could get hold of this book. And what a disappointment it was. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, it's worth reading because you get a lot of the messages written by Lucas and obviously they're kind of really fascinating and stuff. But it is so poorly written. Like, Ken is such a bad writer and he writes his book in such a cringeworthy way. He spends the entire time coming across as an angsty teenager who's upset and angry at the world and himself and everything. He spends the whole time saying how he doesn't believe it and it's all a fake and all a hoax. And then acts completely opposite to what he's saying. So he'll say like, oh, I got this message. It was all rubbish. It was all nonsense. I didn't believe any of it. The next day, I travelled 60 miles to go to a bizarre, obscure library to look up an obscure fact in the message that we received. Ken, 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 you either believe it or you don't. But you don't say you don't believe it and then go to such effort. But he spends the whole time saying how, of course, he doesn't believe it, but it was really affecting his life. It's. It, I, I feel like he spends too much time trying to ensure the reader that he's a skeptic of his own story. And that rings alarm bells for me. And what's worse is it drags the book into the, like, really down because you spend the whole time thinking, like, come on, man, you want me to believe your story? Work with me here. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, 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 make me believe it. Don't spend every page on your book telling me that you don't believe it and I shouldn't believe it and it's all ridiculous and stupid because he goes further than being sceptical he calls it like ridiculous and stupid and he's quite derogatory about it so you end up just thinking well yeah like this is your story though so if you think that of it what do you want me to think of it he's really a bad writer I say it's a really difficult book to get through um I found it just it really frustrating and one of those books where you have to sort of read every line and read into what the true meaning is rather than actually what you're reading on the surface because the actual writing is cack there's there's other things in it like for example the way he describes the spr men investigators is is very funny he writes of the original spr investigators as being kind of i think he calls one of them wiry and academic and things like this and and basically he's not altogether positive about them and yet, when they meet Gary, who believes his story, Gary is smart and sharp. I think he describes him, his first time he describes him as smart and sharp man. And you think, come on, Ken, this is baby stuff. This is really childish writing now. Um, so yeah, it's like, if you want to get hold of the book, it's called The Vertical Plane by Ken Webster. Um, it's fascinating and a wonderful story. And I find it utterly compelling, despite the fact that I don't believe it for a second, but we'll come to that. I find it really a compelling and, and great story. And I love time slips and all the rest of it. I just find it difficult to read. But I still recommend, just because it's quite a unique and bonkers little thing, it's, it's certainly fringy and out there. But I, I, I do think it's um, absolute nonsense. So what leads me to believe it's absolute nonsense? I think it, it, this story would be great. And I love it up until 2109 comes in. At which point I feel like it goes from being an interesting story about time slips to a crap sci-fi. 
2109 is, is another repulsive character. And I think that's the point. I mean, Ken doesn't like 2109, but, but it, it is another character that is just difficult to read and you just want to punch in the face the entire time. I'm a pacifist and I wanted to punch most of these characters in the face. And I say that, that, that all's not helped at all by Ken's kind of constant downer. He's constantly being a Debbie Downer on his own book, which doesn't really help. There's a really funny line towards the end, and he says that he's getting, you know, he's, he feels like he's turning into a moody gut teenager who takes everything too serious. And it really made me laugh because I was thought, like, yeah, no shit. Like, it's just, this whole book is that, Ken. Anyway, but to be less down about it, like, let's talk about the actual story. So, interestingly, the one thing I think. I actually agree with Ken and Debbie on, and I'm less skeptical about is that the BBC comparing his writing with that of Lucas and saying that they were both structurally similar. Well, they're not. I mean, I, I'm not a scientist, but I can tell you they're not. And, and, and Ken's reply to this was, you only had one message to go on. That, like, basically, the BBC only took one message, and it was one of the earlier messages, and, and that was it. And I can definitely see that they can't have made a comparison with much of because... A lot of the text coming from Lucas was utterly unreadable. It was just bizarre. I mean, I tried to minimise how much of it I quoted, and when I quoted it, I tried my best to re- read it clearly and, and, and in a way that can still be understood. But a lot of it is just these kind of cryptic, weird messages, with the, and the grammar is absolutely mental. So, I mean, it doesn't. you don't have to analyse it on a computer to tell you that it's in the same percentile. It's... It's they're not similar constructions because they're not meant to be. Like even if I believe that Ken was faking it, he didn't write these messages in the same way he writes the book. So I, I actually find the BBC's analysis I'm actually skeptical of myself. Like I, I don't think that's a very good analysis. And I do think that Ken had every right to be upset at the what they came out and said about it. I do believe the Cambridge lady who spoke of the writing saying if it was a hoax it would look better and all the rest of it because her analysis is is more cerebral and it makes a little bit more sense she just says basically these words don't really go together and people didn't really use them like that so as much as it kind of looks a bit like a kind of 15th century or 16th century writing to a layman it's it's not to an academic who knows the words so i i believe her analysis of it much more than I believe the the kind of analysis of the comparison, but you know that that I, I still sort of side with Ken on that more than anyone else, and I, and I love the idea of time slips. Like I would love this to be true. Like I absolutely would love this to be true. It leads you with that kind of tantalising hope that perhaps perhaps you know they could find Thomas's book. This would all be validated, and that's kind of. Just tantalizing little bit, isn't it? Like, I suppose it's the kind of the carrot on the on the end of the stick. I found Gary to be somewhat frustrating on the message boards because he spends. I would like to get hold of Gary actually and and speak to him on the podcast because I think that would be great. But um, I'm not sure how keen he is on talking. But what I found frustrating about his his message boards because it's great that he's still talking about it because obviously he found it interesting. And that in itself is something, you know, that he investigated this. And I, I believe that he did a, a, a good investigation on it and everything. But all these years later, he's still writing on message boards about it. You know, I, I think that he probably did find it important 
it's not that I don't believe his findings or his assumptions, but what I don't like about the way he writes is everything. He doesn't ever give any definite answers to anything. And he answers every question put to him by someone else with a new question. And it's like cringingly cryptic. And also, more importantly, he doesn't give any definite answers, which means he obviously he can't be proved definitively wrong. So it's frustrating. It's that frustrating speech pattern that you just hate because, you know, as a skeptic, because you, you, you're trying to get truth out of someone or you're trying to read for some sort of meaning, but they're not giving you any because they're not really saying anything. Yeah, they're say, using a lot of words without saying anything. So that I find was is quite frustrating. But, it, but I found it interesting that he's still involved. You know, he's still interested at least in, and he's still involved in the paranormal and ufology and stuff, but he's still interested in this case. I found that interesting. He, he goes on about um, numerology and such things and all this stuff with this chapter being numbered wrong and and I, I'm, I'm not really sure I understand it. I think you would need to really kind of dig into the wonderful world of Gary M. Rowe and I'm not really sure that I want to. <laughs> but it's interesting. I'll give it that. Overall, I really like this story and I really like time slips. I really just don't like the way Ken wrote about it. But I really like time slips. I, I find other stories of time slips more fascinating than this one, but they're just not written up enough to make them into an episode. But there's examples. There's, there's a street in Liverpool um, that people have claimed of walking down. And I love that some people have said that they've walked down it and they've come out in a completely different time. And it's about the 1950s, I think. And so they've been walking down the street and suddenly things have just kind of been the 1950s. And that's kind of interesting, but kind of out there and pretty trippy. But I also really like some people's um, descriptions of this time slip in Liverpool, where they said they've been walking down the street and they're still walking down the same street. Everything looks modern day to them, but the sounds and the smells and, you know, the, the, the sort of sensations change. And I find that really interesting. That, that's, that's seriously fascinating to me. Like, so, you know, the sounds of the cars kind of fade away and the sounds of kind of horses kind of take over and stuff like this. And you're like, that again, that's pretty trippy, but I find that really um, fascinating. Like, this kind of like ghostly interpretation of the world around you rather than straight up everything, sight, sound, everything just changing. Just kind of sensations around you changing. I find that really fascinating. So this whole concept of time slips are, are excellent and you know i think i've been kind of probably enough with them the idea of time slips and stuff since things like if anyone has ever remembered it there's a british program called goodnight sweetheart which was a, a sitcom about a guy who walked down an alleyway and later at the back of his shop um he walked down an alleyway and came out in world war Two, and i just love that idea you know that you could go down an alleyway in modern times and come out the other end, you know, 60, 70 years in the past. And the, the, the program's hilarious because actually, you know, as a sitcom, it's weird because he basically ends up having this affair with uh, a woman in, in, in 1940s. And the whole program is you basically rooting for this guy that his affair succeeds when you really kind of boil it down, which is kind of weird and a bit grim. But, you know, that's going well off topic. But it's, you know, I fell in love with the idea 
of just that that, that time slip idea since seeing that program and 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 I really like the idea of time slips. So yeah, I I wish I could believe this one. I don't. Re- I find it really very hard to reconcile the twenty one oh nine stuff. I find it more believable until twenty one oh nine comes in. When once Ken introduces twenty one oh nine, I feel like everything gets a little bit. Perhaps yeah, he sort of bit bites off a little more than he could chew there, and it sort of turns into this weird kind of crap sci fi. But there's a lot to talk about here, so we will certainly be doing that, and that will be on the live stream, which will be next weekend. And I invite everyone to come along and chat about this. And also, I think because time slips and this one's being really out there, I think we'll probably talk about some other time slips as well. So if you know of any time slips, come along and talk about them. I'll do a little bit more research into that Liverpool one in, and we'll talk about that. And we'll just talk about sort of this story and what we think of it in general. But if you've ever been to a live stream before, they're absolutely like chaos we stay on topic for all of five minutes and then tend to wander um and they're good fun they're a free-for-all they're not meant to be like structured or there is like a very 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 loose structure but it's it's really casual um if you want to come along you can get involved and chat on the youtube chat because it's over on youtube and you can also jump into google hangouts with us and literally just jump on the stream and have a chat with us so if you want to do that I'd love to see you all there. It'd be great. Um, they say so they are good fun. Don't expect anything too serious and rigid. It's 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 literally a free for all where we can just be ourselves and relax and talk in an environment about wacky stuff. So yeah, that'll be next Saturday night at I think nine p.m. EST. But I will put the details of that out on social media. So social medias, uh, if you want to know any of that stuff, go on the website. It's probably your best bet, darkhistories.com. On darkhistories.com, you can find all the episodes, all the episode notes, um, things like maps, uh, all the links to all the sources, and all the ways in which you can find us on social media, contact me. And there's also all the ways that you can support the show. If you can support the show, it's amazing because you know it's totally independent and relies entirely on the support of our listeners pretty much to keep this rolling. It's yeah it's really what makes the wheels of this show turn really so thank you so much for all your support um now and in the future we also have a discord if you want to come over on discord that's a nice little community quite active now so yeah if you want to come over to our discord again it's all on darkhistories.com so i'll direct you there once again thanks so much for listening i hope you enjoyed it it was a pretty wacky one this week um we'll probably be a bit more down to earth for next episode say as much as i don't believe any of it pretty much and i'm very skeptical i just feel i still think it's a really compelling story so i hope you guys kind of share that sentiment thanks very much for listening i'll see you all over next week at the live stream or in two weeks for the next episode thanks very much take care have a great two weeks sleep tight